0: We've uh, looked at this passage uh, several times since uh, Resurrection Day. This is the Easter season, and we're looking at these occasions of uh, the appearances of Jesus. And we have looked at Luke 24. I think this is now uh, the third time, at least. And uh, last week, we, we looked at it, looked at these particular verses, verses 36 to 43. And I suggested that there were three respects in which God's people may be at peace. Now you know uh, you got to try to crawl into the skin of the disciples here and understand that Jesus comes to them in the midst of fears. Now you know something about fear. All right so just just uh, superimpose your own fears on to the fears of the disciples or maybe try to understand the fears of the disciples. They're Behind locked doors, John tells us twice in John 20, verses 19 and 26, that they're behind locked doors. In verse 19 of John 20, he says it's because they were afraid of the Jews. They're afraid. They're terrified. They don't know what the future holds. They don't know what to expect. They don't know if they'll be arrested, executed, their master was. Maybe they will be as well. Fears, real fears. Everybody has them. And the three things that we said last week, we focused on two of them. We're going to focus on the third. Three respects in which the disciples, meaning these disciples and you now, disciples and followers of Jesus, three respects in which you may be at peace. You may be at peace concerning the person of Jesus. When he comes to his disciples, he comes speaking peace. He says, peace be to you. Because the work is done... Because Jesus has submitted to judgment and wrath, you have no fear. You have no fear at His approach. If the Holy One of Israel comes, you don't have to be afraid. So you don't have to be afraid concerning the person of Jesus. You don't have to be afraid with respect to your doubts. Concerning your doubts, you can be at peace. People have doubts, closely related to fears. Fears, doubts, doubts, fears. They all get wrapped up together in a kind of a spiritually degrading DNA, you know, two strands of DNA that just suck you down. Supposed to give life, they tend to give death. But you don't have to be afraid of your doubts. Jesus embraces the disciples in the midst of their doubts and gives them evidence. He responds to them. He doesn't dismiss them. He doesn't walk away from them. But he gives them evidence. Good reason for them to believe and to work at overcoming their doubts. And then the last thing, the last respect in which people can be at peace is because of the future, because of the future. And that's what I want to focus on this morning. Why is it that we can be at peace with respect to the future? And that is because of the resurrection of Jesus. And I want to trace out some things in the scriptures as we sort of pull them out from this particular passage. But let's read these verses And then we'll try to pull those things out from some other places in Scripture. But just pay attention to the fact that Jesus seems preoccupied with the fact that he's really physically, flesh and bone, present with his disciples and he wants them to understand that. Verse 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Let's pray together. Lord, please be with us. Uh, this, This is a thing that you intend to encourage our hope. This is a thing that you intend to sustain us, and we, your people, this morning need to be sustained. So please, Lord, Please, Lord, by your spirit, take this your word and this poor attempt to preach it and encourage the hearts of your people that Jesus might be praised. We ask in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, here's the question I think I want to ask you to wrestle with. What do you expect with respect to the future? What do you expect with respect to the future? What do, you, what do you see as you look down the hallway of history, as you look down the corridor of history, as you, as you at some level, I think as Christians you have the, 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 the right sort of world view when it comes to understanding the nature of history, that it isn't cyclical, it doesn't go on for and ever and ever, there's a beginning, there's an end, there's an end coming, it's out there, there's an end coming. I don't know when it is, you don't know when it is. I'm glad somebody's at home in the universe who does know when it is. But It's coming. History is not a meaningless cycle of repetitions, a cycle of living and dying and living and dying ad infinitum with no meaning or significance or point. It's going someplace. And what do you think is coming when you get to the end of it? And here's another thing for you to think about. What do you think awaits you if your end should come before that end comes? These are questions that we ought to be thinking about and they're questions to which the scriptures speak and they're really questions that are addressed by the physical presence of Jesus with his disciples. The physical presence of Jesus with his disciples. There's a lot of um, misunderstanding about what awaits us either after our personal histories are over or after the whole of history is over. I've read this book by N.T. Wright. It's called Surprised by Hope, from which the sermon title comes. I've read it. I'm reading it again because it's one of the most significant books I've read in the last 25 years. Um, and in the opening chapters, he reads, he raises these questions. What do we expect? What are we looking for? What do we think is going to happen? And he wants to disabuse us of Popular notions of what's going to happen, and he wants to disabuse us of wrong-headed thinking that exists to far too great an extent in the church about what is coming. Here's an example of the sort of popular notions that are out there in the culture. This is an anonymous poem that he cites in his book by a soldier who was going to Northern Ireland And this soldier is contemplating his own death. And he says, if I die, do not stand at my grave and weep. I am not there. I do not sleep. I am a thousand winds that blow. I am the diamond glints in the snow. I am the sunlight on ripened grain. I am the gentle autumn rain. Do not stand at my grave and cry. I am not there. I do not die. Now, folks, that's not Christianity. That's pantheism. That is not what the scriptures teach regarding your ultimate end. It is counter and contrary to what the scriptures teach. Here's another little citation. This comes from someone whose name you know. The First Lady, Maria Shriver, the First Lady of California, the wife of Arnold Schwarzenegger, who wrote a book called What's Heaven?, And in it, Shriver says this, heaven is somewhere you believe in. It's a beautiful place where you can sit on soft clouds and talk to other people who are there. At night, you can sit next to the stars, which are the brightest of any in the universe. If you're good throughout your life, then you get to go to heaven. When your life is finished here on earth, God sends angels down to take you up to heaven to be with him. And grandma is alive in me. Most important, she taught me to believe in myself. She's in a safe place with the stars, with God and the angels. She's watching over us from up there. I want you to know, says the heroine to her great-grandma, that even though you are no longer here, your spirit will always be alive in me. That's poppycock. And I don't mean to be insensitive, but it's poppycock, it's not true, and it is contrary to what Christianity teaches. Now, that's the world out there. That's popular, sentimentalizing life after death. But let me, let me just challenge you with, with what has been my experience as a minister of the gospel over 30 years. Way too many times I've performed funerals and I have heard either from members of the family of the deceased or I have heard from friends of the deceased who have passed by the open casket, who have looked at the body, who have stared into that coffin and who have said, that is not him, that is not her. He is not there. She is not there. He, she is with Jesus. Now, I've said it. So I stand guilty as charged. And if you've said it, what I'm hoping to do for all of us is correct a gross and horrible misunderstanding of what awaits us. Of what awaits you at the end of of your personal history and what awaits all of God's people at the end of this history which will have an end, which will then usher all of God's people into an eternal history wherein they will enjoy Jesus in all of his blessedness and benediction and fullness and greatness forever and ever. Let me give us three snapshots, three pictures, if you will, that I believe legitimately come out of a consideration of this text Jesus literally, physically, materially being present with his disciples on the first resurrection day. So much so that he ate fish in their presence. Real fish. Three pictures. First the big picture, then a personal picture, and then an in-between picture. Big picture, personal picture, and in-between picture. The big picture. What is the big picture here? Well, the resurrection of Jesus cannot be considered as an isolated thing. You you can't consider it as a kind of a freak of nature, a kind of a thing unto itself, an unusual thing. You have to connect the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus' literal, bodily, physical resurrection, which all the historic creeds of the church have incorporated into themselves, been incorporated into those creedal statements. The literal, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus has to be connected to the great story that is unfolding in the whole of Scripture. Now, I want to be real careful as I use the word story and want you to understand that story as I use it is not a synonym for allegory or myth or fable. What we're talking about when we talk about the story is a thing that I've been talking about quite a lot in the nearly three years that I've been here. And that is this unfolding purpose of God by which God intends fully to redeem, renew, and restore the whole of the cosmos, including a people to inhabit it in the new heaven and the new earth. Forever. That's the big story. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. The whole of the 66 books of the Bible, all 66 books as disparate and different as they may seem to be, all 66 books of the Bible are telling this one unfolding glorious story of God's intent after the fall to redeem, renew, and fully restore everything that is lost, broken, mangled, cursed because of sin. It's interesting. I want you to look with me at First Corinthians 15. It's very interesting and very, very much worth contemplating. That the Apostle Paul talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ using Old Testament language. He connects the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the whole cycle of Jewish feasts and, fe- and festivals that celebrated God's powerful deliverance of Israel from Egypt. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 16 and following. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul connects the resurrection of Jesus to this Old Testament notion of first fruits. Now, what is that all about? Well, think again about the cycle of festivals and feasts in Old Testament Israel. The, the quick scheme of things, a cycle of feasts that is repeated every year in Israel's history, is Passover, Pentecost, and Booths. And Passover and Pentecost, these first two feasts in the agricultural cycle, were the feasts in which, first with Passover, the barley grain was presented to the Lord. A thank offering was given to the Lord for provision of barley. And then, seven weeks later, at Pentecost, the feast of first fruits, the feast that is called the Feast of First Fruits, the spring wheat was offered as an offering to the Lord. And throughout Jewish history, these two feasts, Passover and Pentecost, became woven together. Both of which pointed to the third feast, which is the great and final harvest. The harvest that occurs at the time of the Feast of Booths. When the final ingathering is accomplished in the agrarian cycle. Now these things took on redemptive significance. What is Passover? Passover. Well, Passover, of course, was the celebration of God's mighty act of doing what? Of delivering God's people from their bondage in Israel under a cruel oppressor Pharaoh who taxed them. You know, it's so hard for me to preach about this stuff without referring to my greatest piece of mythology, my favorite piece of mythology, Robin Hood and his band of merry men who were merry because they knew that King Richard was going to come back. And when King Richard came back, he was going to throw the evil Prince John off the throne. He was going to lock up the sheriff of Nottingham. And all of Sherwood Forest was going to enjoy the peaceful, righteous, just, liberating rule of Richard the Lionheart. When Israel celebrates Passover, they're celebrating the first element, the first aspect of their salvation. It's not the whole thing. When they celebrate Passover, they're celebrating their deliverance from cruel bondage, from slavery, from oppression. They're celebrating their deliverance. But then when they celebrate Pentecost seven weeks later, they're celebrating their arrival at Mount Sinai where God who has brought His bride out of her bondage in Egypt, under the cruelty of Pharaoh, brings his bride to Mount Sinai and weds her to himself and makes makes her his treasured possession and gives her the law so that she might be guided, so that she might know the mind of God, so that she might live in righteousness and enjoy the blessings that God intends. So there's there's... Passover leading to the beginnings of the Exodus and coming to Mount Sinai and a wedding celebration and the giving of the law. And then what happens next? Is that the end of the story? No, it's not. Where do they go after that? Into the wilderness. Into the wilderness where they're surrounded by uncertainty and where there are scorpions and snakes and where it gets cold at night and hot in the daytime and and where they don't have water and they don't have food, and moment by moment and day after day, you know, the story becomes the great story of your life and mine, the Exodus, where the people have to live moment by moment and day by day, depending upon what and upon whom. Not their own wit and wisdom, not their own intelligence and power, but moment by moment and day after day for 40 long years looking to God in the midst of the wilderness to provide for them food and water, to keep them safe at night, to keep them cool in the daytime, to keep them safe from the scorpions and other things that would attack them. Does that sound at all familiar to you? That's where you are. That's where I am. And Passover and Pentecost, followed by these long years of waiting and watching, are merely the first fruits. That's that's what the Old Testament calls Pentecost, the Feast of First Fruits. It's a down payment. It's a taste of something that is to come. But it's not the whole enchilada. It's not the whole thing. I, I say to you repeatedly, I'm so glad that I'm forgiven. I'm so glad that I'm set free. But I'm not satisfied. I was thinking, I was listening to, to that great uh, Irish poet this last week, Bono. You know, was listening to, to the song, still haven't found what I'm looking for. And folks, look, I've had a taste of it, but I haven't had all of it, and I want all of it. And Passover and Pentecost first fruits direct the attention of Israel to something beyond them out there in front of them, something that is coming. And what is it that is coming? It is entrance into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land so blessed of God. And you can read about this. It's in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Read all of them this afternoon. won't take you that long. Yeah, right. What is characteristic of that land flowing with milk and honey? God is in the midst of her. Heaven and earth are no longer separated, but they've been reunited. God is in the midst of his people. The cows don't miscarry. The shoes don't wear out. The buttons don't pop off. There is perfect, complete, and total shalom that enfolds. The promised land. It's no longer a wilderness, but it's a land flowing with milk and honey. Paul ties that whole cycle of historical redemptive events to the resurrection of Christ in this passage in 1 Corinthians 15 as he uses these words first fruits. And he's saying, look at the resurrection of Christ in the same way that you look at these feasts and festivals in Israel. The resurrection of Christ is a down payment. It's a taste. It's pointing you in the direction of something greater yet to come. And it's even hinted at in the passage. Verse 22, as in Adam all die, also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ, and then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. Captured in that 24th verse, after he refers to Christ, the firstfruits, and then those who belong to Christ, it is coming. That's the greater harvest. Then there is this idea of a kingdom, a kingdom, with a king who is ruling over citizens who love the king and enjoy the benefits of his rule and who enjoy all of the blessedness of his realm. A ruler, those who are ruled, and a realm within which they dwell. So what's the order? Christ the firstfruits. And then it is coming the greater harvest that leads to entry into the promised land where all of the blessedness that you long for will be yours forever. And I just want to point out to you again, just want to, want to, point, to you, point you to uh, Luke 24 and just make this observation that Jesus repeatedly makes much of the fact that he's not a ghost, he's not a spirit, but his resurrection is a real, physical, bodily, tangible, touchable, embraceable So what's the cosmic picture? What's the big picture? The big picture is that Christ's resurrection points us in the direction, the way Paul describes it in Romans 8, another passage for you really to look at. The resurrection of Jesus points us to the final day when the sons of God, the sons and daughters of God, those who belong to Christ at his coming, will be revealed and disclosed, And when they are revealed and disclosed, when they are made known, when they experience their great liberation, when they're finally delivered from the wilderness, when cold and and darkness and heat and sweat and scorpions and all the rest are finally behind, then, Paul says, Romans 8, the creation will be liberated from its bondage. Same kind of language that's used throughout the Old Testament. It's not only you and I who suffer under the plague of oppression, but it is the creation as well. And the whole creation, Paul says, will be set free. So what did Jesus come for when he came? Jesus came for a people whom the Father had entrusted to him before the foundation of the world. He came to liberate them. He came to set them free of people from every race and nation and tribe and tongue. He came to set them free so that they might be restored to their dignified place, ruling and governing and enjoying all of the blessings of a liberated creation, a creation that is set free from its bondage. That's what's coming. That's what's down the road. That's the big picture. Now, what's the personal part of this? What's the more individual and personal part of it? Well, let's look again at this passage in 1 Corinthians. Let me have you look at verses 35 to 37, 42 to 45, and 50 to 54. 1 Corinthians 15, 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless unless it dies. Now that's a text that will preach. It was true for Jesus. Jesus is the seed sown in the earth that becomes the largest bush in the whole of the garden, the mustard tree, right? Right? The mustard seed that's so small and inconsequential. That's what Jesus was. Who came in humility and weakness. Who was sown in death. Who then is raised in glory and becomes this glorious tree in the garden that gathers into its branches all of the birds of the air and under its branches all of the beasts of the field. Jesus is the great seed who is sown through death. But look at what Paul says. Verse 37. What you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. And then look at 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. These are the words that are important. What is sown is perishable. Perishable. What is something perishable? It's something that after a while it either dies or rots. Right? We put stuff in the vegetables to keep them from perishing. I sometimes think that if something can stay on your shelf more than six weeks, it's probably not a good idea to eat it especially something that can stay on your shelf for six months or even a year. And there are things out there. Why? Because we put all these preservatives in these things to keep them from perishing. Folks, you are perishing. Every one of you in this room, even the young guys here who think in their heads that they're young and strong, that they're going to beat the odds, that they're going to be unlike everybody else who has ever lived on this planet, they're not going to make it. In the moment of your conception, you begin to perish. Why? Because of the sin of Adam. And because as a result of the sin of Adam, death touches everything and leaves the whole creation under a curse. But what is raised, this is the distinctive thing, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. A spiritual body. Don't be confused by what Paul is saying. He's not denying the reality of physical existence. He's simply using language, language which is always inadequate, to describe something transcendently wonderful and glorious. There are two things and I hope they strike home, I hope they hit home with you. There are two things about your bodies, bodies that will be sown like so many seeds in the ground, bodies which are you. We are Christians here. We're not Hindu. We're not Greek Gnostics, believing that the material order is inherently bad and something to be rid of and escape from we are Christians here and when God created human beings he created them body and soul he created the first marriage in breathing the spirit of life into an inanimate physical body and what it is to be human is to be fully alive physically and spiritually your real bodies will be sown like so many seeds in the ground not to be left there but to be raised and then reunited with your souls. You know, you got marriage, and then you've got a tragic divorce where body and soul are ripped apart, and then you have a wonderful remarriage where body and soul are put back together. Two things, okay? I'm getting to the two things. The body that is raised will be raised in glory, glorified. What does that look like? I'm not sure. I don't know. I wasn't there to see Jesus. Jesus did some unusual and remarkable things. He appeared in rooms where the doors were closed. He was able to travel distances in very short periods of time. Truly remarkable. But it was physical, glorious, resplendent. C.S. Lewis makes the case in the book, The Great Divorce, that if you were to see a glorified saint, you would be inclined to fall down and worship. So it will be raised in glory. And secondly, it will be raised never to die again. Never to die again. It's sown in weakness and dishonor. It is raised in glory and immortality. So, what's the personal story? I'll just illustrate it this way. I I did a funeral not long before moving here to Vero Beach from Orlando. And very often, pastors are allowed to be with the family in a side room before the funeral to pray with the family as the family will say their last goodbyes to the one who has died. And all of the family has filed out of the room to go into the main room. For the funeral service. And the casket was still open. And I looked at Jim lying in the casket and I said, It is you. It is you. It is you. It is you. And you will come out of the ground glorified, never to die again. And you will be reunited with your soul to live body and soul, perfected and glorified in the presence of the Savior who has loved you with an everlasting love forever and ever. That's what awaits you if you're a Christian this morning. The prospect, yes, of being sown in the ground. Death is a real enemy. Death is not to be winked at. Death is not to be made light of. It is a real enemy. But Christ, by his death and resurrection, has overcome it. And his resurrection is a down payment on the final restoration of everything and of your personal, perfect, and complete restoration body and soul. Now, what's the in-between part? What's the in-between business part of this story? Well, I've alluded to it already. The in-between part is that we suffer and we labor and we struggle with the reality of death. We do. You do. I do. There are so many passages in the scriptures that could be pointed to to be a help and encouragement to us as we contemplate this and think about this. But 1 Thessalonians 4.13 is becoming my favorite. Of all of the passages in the New Testament and really throughout the scriptures, in the Old Testament as well, where these matters are addressed, this one is becoming my favorite. Verse 13, 1 Thessalonians 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope don't have time to go into this thing exhaustively but let me just tell you that the apostle paul is very clearly talking about these these people in Thessalonica who have become christians who have heard that jesus is the resurrection and the life who have heard that jesus was dead, but is now alive, and that anyone entrusting himself or herself to him, even though he die, yet will he live. These Thessalonians have come to understand that. And since Paul has preached the gospel to them, somebody or some group of people, some number of people have died. And they're perplexed. And they wonder, okay, what does this gospel have to say to the real and present grief that we are experiencing in this church in Thessalonica. And Paul is a pastor, and he's writing as a pastor. He loves these people. They've ministered to him. There's a wonderful relationship between them. And he's writing them as a pastor to tell them the truth and what the implications of the gospel are for them, particularly with respect to those who have died. And Paul is very clearly in this passage thinking about their bodies. When he refers to these who have fallen asleep, he's referring to their bodies. He's not describing soul sleep. If you remember Philippians chapter 1, Paul says it is better. You know, He's, he's wondering, is it better for me to stay on in the flesh or to go be with the Lord? And he says, it's better to go be with the Lord for me. It's better for you if I stay on in the flesh. But to depart and be with Christ is far better. In other words, even though death represents a horrible, enigmatic, confusing, heart-wrenching divorce where body and soul are torn apart, it is better to depart and be with Christ because my soul will be in the embrace of the one who has loved me with an everlasting love. But my body will sleep in the dust. Paul is clearly describing what the theologians have referred to as the intermediate state. What happens in the in-between? What happens before the return of Christ? Many of us, as I've said, will find that our bodies and our souls are torn apart by death and our bodies will be sown like so many seeds in the ground, but our souls, as was true with the thief on the cross the day Jesus died, our souls will be with Jesus in paradise to enjoy sweet communion with Him. That's what Paul is talking about here. This is what's going to happen. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those whose bodies are resting in the ground, because we don't want you to grieve like those who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus... God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep, those bodies that rest in the ground. They will be brought with Jesus. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Where's the encouragement? The encouragement is that though the bodies lay in the grave, though there is this rending, the soul is present with Jesus. And when Jesus returns, he raises the bodies, reunites them to the souls, and forever we are present with the Lord. What happens? At the time of your death is what happened to the Apostle Paul at the time of his death. He departed, was present with Christ, kept in his care, freed from the turmoil and the struggle of life in the wilderness. But Paul, present with Jesus today, awaits the greater day, which is the day of final restoration. The day of final resurrection, the day of ingathering, the final harvest, and entrance in to the new heaven and the new earth to enjoy Christ in that new heaven and new earth forever. Now I got to tell you, that's good news. I think that's wonderful news. No matter what I find, that's why Paul says, "Comfort one another with these words." It isn't that you're not going to grieve. You have, you will. We will grieve. Our hearts will break. But we don't grieve as those who have no hope because the king is coming. Richard the Lionheart is returning. And when he does, he will destroy every enemy, every evil. He will raise bodies. He will reunite them to souls. And he will usher us into the new heaven and the new earth. I want you to watch for this in the hymn that we sing as we close. Number 358. I'm not going to pick on hymn writers, um, but I will just tell you that I believe N.T. Wright is correct when he says that hymn writers have sentimentalized eternal life to a far too great extent. But this hymn gets the order and sequence of things right. And so I want you to watch for it. I want you to watch for the shift that there is between verses 4 and 5 and the saints' rest and the yet more glorious day which awaits all who trust in Jesus. Let's stand together and sing number 358 for all the saints.